misses. Brock isn't dead. It's just sleuthing. With your host, Willie Whitebread, and Mark Audio Slave Stewart. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. Hey, welcome back, fuckers, to another edition of Rock Isn't Dead, It's Just Sleeping with me. Willie Whitebread, and always illustrious and gray fox beautiful human being of Mark the Audio Slave. Hey guys, how are you today? <laughs> so we finally got our studio all uh, up and running. Uh, we were having a little audio snafu yesterday, but we got it worked out, we believe. We are in like Flynn. That's it. Okay, so the topic of discussion today is one of the most influential bands of our generation, previous generations, and probably future generations. Hmm. The Doors. The Doors. The uh, Doors. Breaking on through. Let's start about, why don't we tell them a little bit about how The Doors got their name. The Doors got their name, Mark. How did The Doors get their name, Mark? Wasn't it a, a Huxley mm-hmm. book that they had called, it was an excerpt from one of his books, about The Doors of Perception. That's right. right. Breaking right? through The Doors of Perception. And that's... One of the main focuses of their songwriting, you know, mm-hmm. persona was they wanted to break through the doors of time. They wanted to break through the doors of <coughs> actuality, of reality, of everything, you know? Right. That's kind of how they did it. And uh, and so let's start a little bit about the, it's a four-piece band, They uh, minus a bass player, which is unique, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ray Manzarek on organ, you have John Densmore on drums, Robbie Krieger on guitar, and obviously the... Highly intelligent and highly dangerous Jim Morrison vocals. Now, what's interesting is about what you just said about no bass player. So Ray, the keyboardist, I believe he is the one who was responsible for live performing with the bass on his left hand and on his right hand yeah. he's doing all of the other melodies and stuff. Yeah. Now, that in the studio, it was different for them. In the studio, they, they actually needed to have a, a studio bass player come in and, and, and do those lines because it because according to Ray, it sounded a lot better with 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 that in the, in the studio. And then he would just go and, and do his live rig and then he would just do it, you know, without the bass player for the live audience. Right. And that's that's super unique, too, because a lot of all of these all the members of the band had very different backgrounds, you know, like uh, Ray Manzarek and Jim, they were. They were both film students. They weren't really into music. Right. I mean, I'm sure they were into music, but they weren't in the music scene, and they weren't, you know, actively in bands. Because you hear most most bands <clears throat> that make it big, they, you know, they've been in bands for a while. They've been playing little small gigs for their friends, or you know, whatever. Correct. You know, but none of them. They they never did it. And John Densmore, he is a, uh, you know, he had a background in jazz drumming. And Robbie Krieger, obviously, his unique background. He's a Spanish flamenco guitar and, and bottleneck and slide, which is makes all, you know, it was a perfect kind of cosmic bringing together of these guys because it was all, you know, they were all from very different backgrounds and it makes it very yeah. unique. Yeah. And a lot of the uh, flamenco guitar came from uh, his, his younger days when he learned how to play guitar. He also learned how to play uh, the sitar, 
with uh, one of his uh, mentors. Cool. Yeah, so you know you hear, and of course you hear the, the flamenco a lot in the Spanish Caravan. You know, yeah, um, Spanish Caravan. And uh, when when the bottleneck was was heard by Jim Morrison, he, he for the for the for the whole first album, he wanted you know nothing but but that to be heard on the on the first album, which of course wasn't. But you know, um, he loved Jim loved that that bottleneck sound. Right. Right, and it's very unique to that time. And I know, I know Robbie Krieger as well because as we we talked a little bit about offline, most of the bands from that time period, um, you know, you have your exceptions. You you know your Pink Floyd's and, and and whatnot and Led Zeppelin. Well, not even so much Led Zeppelin. Most bands of that time, if not almost all, had a strong blues influence. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because that was that was the also hot British. Thing the time. I mean, this is the first American heavy hitter. Oh yeah, you know, band of that time. I, yeah, you know, I would say. Yeah, the British invasion definitely had a had a hold on the the media market and the entertainment market at that right, time. Right. But yeah, all of all of the, or I wouldn't say all of, but the majority of our artists from from America were were heavily blues influenced, and Robbie Krager uh, specifically went very vocal in the sense that he did not want that Chuck Berry sound. Yeah, you know, yeah. they wanted something unique. They didn't want that Chuck Berry sound. So, so that, well, that brings us into uh, where we have to go with uh, Jim and, and how they met. And why don't, why don't we talk a little bit about how uh, Jim, his early, his early years. Early years. Well, Jim Morrison was always kind of that, that introverted, uh, I would say, um, tortured soul kind of. Because he was a product of, of his environment. And he, he was almost rebelling in a sense uh, because, you know, he was born into that that uh, decorated naval officer, you know, his dad was a Navy admiral and his mom was the typical uh, stay at home. Yes, dear. I'll have dinner on the table at right. this time, dear. And, right. you know, the father was kind of that stigma behind the overbearing, you know, militaristic father, the, well, you need to be a Navy man and this is what needs to happen and all this mm-hmm. kind of shit, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and back in those, in, in that era, it was, it was a big, it was a heavy political time. You know, because you had, uh, you know, the 60s began with a shock. You had JFK getting shot. You had a big uh, civil rights movements gaining strength. You know, Vietnam War gaining strength, the propaganda behind that. So for the introspective and introverted, it was a it was a unique time. Uh, it was a unique time for them. And it was it was almost very conflicted, you know, because you had societal. And it's some of those things hold truth hold true through today was conflicted because half America was against the war and the other half was, you know, for the, for the country and, and right. approving country and state, you know, that's it. But, but his thing is he was, you know, he was always deeper than that. He wanted to, he always, he didn't want to be anybody else's person, Jim. He wanted to be his own person. He wanted to stand up and scream to the world. This is me. I am me. I'm not you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like I don't it, think he, he had too many political, uh, views he didn't really want to partake in, in politics side of things right and and that was and he goes on record with that a lot with his poetry you know he's he's you know the guy that stands up and screams a hero is someone who rebels against the facts of existence who tests the line who wants to break on through and find out the true existence of himself and the true meaning of who he is as a person aka the psychedelic movement. Yeah, right exactly because especially at that time too because you know modern day in 2019 you know we're we're still, or we're just now dabbling in the, in the, in, you know, in the thought process that I can be whoever I want to be. If I want to, you know, identify as a woman, if I want to, you know, be an open homosexual and it's just, yeah, the whole LBG, XYZ, element yeah. yeah. And that's, and that's just now, I feel like we're now just now getting to, to a point in our country where we can, you know, that's starting to be socially accepted because back then that was, I mean, forbidden. You were, 
people like Andy Warhol and, and Jim Morrison and, and all these guys, they were, you know, looked at as freaks and they were the, they were the wild ones. Yeah. They were the, yeah. the ones that get spit out. You fucking long hair and all that kind of well, shit. Well, come on. You know? Some of them still are freaks. <laughs> Well, I mean, be real here. That's all. Yeah, <laughs> I don't agree with everything that's going on, but I mean, hey, at hey, the end of the day, the room. it's about hey. going home. When if you go want to go home and put on a dress and that makes you happy, fuck it, man. No. And that's what Jim was all about, you know. And he had a very, a lot of very uh, interesting and and chaotic and sort of super influential things that happened to him that kind of set the tone for the Doors' future and his own. Uh, for instance, how. You know, Ray Manzarek goes on record a lot and, and speaks of, well, he did, he died, but uh, he spoke a lot about how Jim was uh, almost shamanistic. You know, he was almost a shaman of his time uh, because, and, and he was, he was, um, he was possessed by a, by an Indian, mm-hmm. you know, because when Jim was four years old, they were, his father and, and his mother and his family were traveling through the desert uh, to, I guess they were going to his, his father's new uh, duty station right. in the Navy or whatever, mm-hmm. and they came upon a giant car wreck. It was a, it was a truckload full of Indian workers, and mm-hmm. uh, I guess it had hit another car, ran off the road. Or there was another car involved or something, whatever. But and uh, they show that in the movie, yeah, and they show that in Oliver Stone's rendition of the Doors. Past. Which I can't say enough about that movie. That movie oh, is phenomenal. Fantastic. If all you guys haven't seen it. Go watch it. Watch it several times. You'll enjoy it. Yeah, it's a fantastic flick, and it's also very historically accurate. Oh, Oliver Stone's best. Yeah, but so he, this Jim was four years old at the time, and he always described the a child's mind like a flower, you know, floating in the breeze. It's so you know yeah. unique, and 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 it's so influential, and it's so you know mm-hmm. adaptable, and all these kind of things. And so he he sees this. He sees a road covered with dead and bleeding and writhing. Uh, Indian workers on the on the ground there, and that had a really lasting effect on him and how he conducted himself himself in the in his adult life. Uh, and it was said that that uh, one of the one of the Indians that wasn't ready to leave the earth, kind of their ethereal form, a very benign spirit, mm-hmm. their ethereal form, sort of adapted into young Jim's physical form, and hence the birth of you know Mr. Mojo Ryzen. And for all you youngins out there who, because uh, there, there are people who don't know about the, the anagram, such as Mr. Mojo Ryzen. Right. That's uh, his name jumbled up. And as you can hear that on a track called L.A. Woman. L.A. Woman. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, you can, uh, if you just put Jim Morrison's name, spell it out, and then put Mr. Mojo Ryzen underneath it, you can rearrange the letters and it spells Jim Morrison. So. Yeah, believe it or not, there's people out there who don't know that. Uh, you wouldn't. I wouldn't know it if I didn't look into it a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. I you mean, know, you know. It, once you know it, you're like, oh, that's yeah. Cool. And you can see, you can see a lot of this Native American, uh, whether or not you choose to believe it or not. You can see a lot of the Native American influence in Jim when he's on stage because a lot of the dancing that he does and a lot oh, of the sounds definitely. he yeah, makes, very, very tribal, very tribal, very, uh, you know, very shamanistic, very Native American influence. And Oliver Stone does press on that also in the movie because you can see in certain scenes you've got an Indian chief that kind of follows him over his shoulder in mm-hmm. different scenes of the movie. Yep, that's right. You know what I mean? And, and, and Roadhouse Blues, you can you can see it a little bit in that, that conk, 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 but was conk. But he, he, he wasn't actually Indian descent. No, he was Anglo-Saxon, yeah. as white-bred as I did, am. He disowned his parents, too, yeah. as a matter of fact, I think. Yeah, he was, he, he was Jimmy White-bred. He was white as it got. And he disowned them before he got famous, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, like I said, it's, it's a product of that, that suppression of personal attitude and that, that suppression of 
who he was as a person. You know what I mean? He wasn't yeah. allowed to express himself. So what, what happens when you have somebody that's that deep in thought and somebody that's that deep, deeply introspective and intelligent, they're going to, they're going to rebel against not being able to be their personal self or they're going to go crazy. Yeah. They're going to constantly be looking for other avenues to, right. to, to make themselves look different or to, or to self-medicate to the sense where they suppress those feelings. That's right. You know, and that's, and, and that's kind of why he got out because he got out and, and, and moved to California and started going to the film school and uh, started going to UCLA uh, School of Film. And, and it was at that point that Jim Morrison pretty much had nothing else to do with mm-hmm. his family. Mm-hmm. You know, his father had tried to reach out to him and I think it was 66 and essentially telling them that, you know, music is going to kill him, which might have been a slightly satirical in a sense, but, uh, but that, you know, he needs to quit this life. He needs to get something substantial. And that's, and that's indicative of a lot of things in modern culture, because how many times do you see a family, you know, that's a family of doctors and they have a, you know, a son or a daughter that wants to, uh, you know, be a film student or a poet or, uh, you know, an actor, an actress, or anything like this, and they're like, ah, no, those are fucking pipe dreams. You can't do that. You got to be a doctor. Be something real. See, now, did he, was his dad doing that because he he, he wanted that to happen, or did he was he doing it because Jim was already famous and he saw how how quickly his his health is, is diving down into the drugs and the alcohol, and he was like, the music's gonna kill you if you stay in that industry. It could have been. I a, mean, it could have been that way too. It could have been a little bit of both, right? But Jim was just either way. He's like, "Fuck you! I'm yeah, doing what I want to do. I'm gonna be who I am. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's I'm a drunk what, bitch. <laughs> yeah, I'm a drunk. I'm gonna do what the fuck I want. And that's why, you know, I think that, you know, yes, Jim died at 27, maybe, but I don't know. I feel like he actually died at 67. That, that he lived a full life because he lived. He was a music. very old soul. Yeah, he lived his art. He broke on through, and he he lived you know, his own life, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't yeah, live oh, it yeah. for anybody else. That's correct. If he wanted to get naked, take 15 hits of acid and run down main street in the sunset strip. God That's bless. He did he it. He was doing that night. Sure as God's got sandals. Jim was streaking through the fucking strip. Yeah. <laughs> but so, so let's talk a little bit about how the doors, how the doors met. They, they all weren't friends at the time. Ray Manzarek knew, uh, the organist knew, uh, Jim Morrison from school. Um, Ray had seen a film that Jim produced, um, which he received a D on. Uh, he wasn't a really fan favorite, I think, because not many people, even at the film school, I don't even think, I don't think they really understood it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that's how they met. And then uh, Ray Manzarek knew uh, John Densmore through yoga. They were taking a meditation and yoga class, and that's how Ray knew John Densmore. And I believe... I could be wrong in this, but I'm pretty positive that John is the one who knew Robbie. Okay. So Ray was almost the catalyst to all this. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, because they had met. Uh, Ray Manzarek had met up with Jim Morrison. I don't know if uh, if it was on a beach, as, as Oliver Stone portrays it or not. But they had met up. And, um, and then that's when Ray kind of was like, you know, let me hear some of your poetry. Try mm-hmm. to sing it. And then so... What did he sing? Moonlight, Moonlight Drive. Drive. So Moonlight Drive, and, and, and that blew Ray Manzarek away. He was like, holy fuck, man. This is crazy. This is great. Yeah, you're in. You're in. Let's do something with this. Let's run. And uh, even at the time, because Ray, Ray and Jim had worked together for a little bit before the rest of the band, before the rest of the other two-piece came into, came into play well, there. John Dinsmore, his brothers were in the band as well at yeah. first. And then they, they said, we're going to go get real jobs. So <laughs> they, they, ditched, they ditched that life pretty quick. <laughs> little, little, little did they know. Uh, right. Yeah. And so uh, I, I remember reading that Ray, Ray had, knew, had known John. And even at the, he, he had gone and said, hey, man, I got this singer 
that has amazing lyrics. He's a, he's a great lyricist. He's a great poet. But we're looking to start something up. But just right now is just not the right time. Mm-hmm. How fucking cosmic is that? Mm. You know what I mean? Because if that would have happened to me, I'd be like, yeah, we need to do this right now. Yeah, this is it. This is it. This is it. Let's go. This is a big one, Elizabeth. Let's fucking do this. <laughs> but yeah, man, they were just so calm and collected about everything. You know, and, and Jim, Jim was saying, oh, I'm going to leave. You know, after, after that time, and, it, you know, Ray had seen him walking around the beach or walking around, or riding a bicycle around Venice. He's like, hey, what happened, man? He's like, oh, man, I just decided to stay here. And so that's when they really started working working hard on their music, and they brought in John Densmore and then mm-hmm. brought in Robbie Krieger right. and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's interesting with John Densmore being with the rest of these, these guys because uh, it's such a difference of personality, you know? Oh, yeah. He was totally just, like, mellow. Yeah. You know. He was almost the square. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know what you I mean? Know. Like, Jim, well, I'm not going to drink again tonight, guys. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go home and get some sleep. Yeah, <laughs> we, got a, we got a really early day of recording tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. we need, I need to be in bed at 8 p.m. Well, the drummers do have a lot of physical exertion. They do. They do have a lot of physical exertion. And John Densmore had a lot of responsibility on his shoulders as well because they didn't have a bass player. So the time and the heartbeat of the band was... Almost completely yeah. reliant on him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, because he wasn't a particularly, you know, incredible drummer. No. Or no, anything. No. You know, I mean, he kept time pretty well, but yeah, he, and he, he was adaptable. He wasn't like you know, give me a twenty-minute solo type drummer, right? You know, wasn't like a Tommy Lee or you know, flip me upside down over a million people. Yeah, drummer. no Joey Jordison or anything coming out in him. Correct. But anyway, so moving forward, they uh, they started recording. Uh, they started recording some songs and getting some sets together, and they they recorded the end. And uh, Robbie Krieger had actually written Light My Fire, which was their number one single on their first album with Elektra Records, uh, their self-titled Doors album. Mm-hmm. Um, so where was their first, uh, you were talking a little bit about, where was their first venue that they played? That was the old London Fog in mm. Venice Beach. Mm. Yep, that's, that's where they threw their roots down, and that's where Jim uh, you know, started performing with his back face in the crowd. And then, yeah. uh, then after a while, he started getting real comfortable because they, they became the house band of that yeah. London Fog you know, pub. And, uh, you know, from there, they just kind of, like, blew up on the... They were a little too big for London Fog after a while. So that's when they, uh, the, the famous Whiskey Go-Go picked them up. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, people started noticing the talent, too, because I'm sure with much like any house band you go to, I mean, you got your house bands that you're sitting there in their background noise and you're drinking booze and you're hanging out, talking to your friends, listening to the music as sort of a background thing, much yeah. like you do when you're cleaning the house or something. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure the doors came along. And people were here, and they're like, "Fuck, I've never heard anything like this before." Yeah, these guys are really good. These guys are the the in, you know. They, they're 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 what's happening. They're the future, mm-hmm. you know. And so, anyway, like Mark said, they uh, they moved over to the Whiskey a Go Go. The manager loved them, um, and they became the house band for the Whiskey. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember reading a little bit about their one of their first. It was either their first or their second show. Uh, with them, you know, Robbie and and John and Ray, they were all there at the show, prepped, ready to go, yep, and all that. Yep. And they couldn't find Jim. And they're like, "What the fuck, man? We go on in like ten minutes. Like, what the fuck?" And so they were all staying at the Tropicana Hotel across the street. And uh, so they ran over there. They started knocking on the door, beating on the door. Jim, man, we're going on in like ten minutes. Where the fuck are you? And, <laughs> and they just see the door crack, and they just see his little eyeball come out <laughs> of this fully naked Jim Morrison with a handful of acid, and he's like. He's all fucking tripped out. I'm not going anywhere. I can't do this. I'm the Lizard King. I can do anything. And so they finally co- coerce this fucked up Jim Morrison out to uh, out to perform the show. And they get on there. And then they, they play a little bit. Obviously back to the crowd because Jim's still very nervous and very, uh, you know, 
kind of ner- scared and stage frightish to, to turn around, which is funny because everybody there was freaking out. That guy used to make women explode. Oh, yeah. Freak the fuck out. Oh, yeah. Because that was, he had the sex appeal. Yeah. You know, then the musicians in the band had the, the new grooves all mixing together with their jazz and, yeah. and a little bit of the blues on the guitar. And then, you know, it, it was just that his Indian influences came into play. And it was yeah. kind of just like a, you know, the, the right place, right time situation. Yeah. You know? People's ears, like, like we were saying, they perk up and they go, fuck, well, I've never heard anything like this before. This is interesting. Right. Uh, and so what, what, was, what happened when they went into the end? So the, the end was like their first single mm-hmm. and they, uh, they, that was actually the first song that they came out with to play on, on national TV. Um, it didn't gain very much popularity as they thought it would. So yeah. what they decided to do was, uh, go their second turn on TV and it was the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah. Now that was the show. If everybody recalls where, uh, he wasn't supposed to say, Higher. Higher. And he decided to say it. Now, they don't know if it was because, you know, he forgot because he was nervous or he did it intentionally. But uh, I think he did it intentionally. But then after the show, Ed Sullivan, you know, pretty much made a statement to the media and said, you know, they're never going to perform on my show again. And then when Jim found out about it, his response was, well, fuck it. We already did. We already. Yeah, we already (laughs) went on Sullivan. Why would we want to do that again? Yeah, we already (laughs) fucking did. What do I And that was how he was, though. He didn't care. He was Mm -hmm. he was kind of just a, a wild man, you know. When he's asked, you know, questions, he kind of just gives these these wild responses constantly to mm-hmm. the media, and, and that was kind of getting him notoriety as well. Right, and yeah, and he got booted from the whiskey as well after that little stunt that he did with the end. That's correct. Yeah, but yeah. well, it was kind of great timing again because you know that was kind of like the same week, same night that Electra picked him up. But he was he uh, he did a horrible thing that night. A horrible thing. He did a <laughs> he did, a he, monumental thing. A monumental thing. A great thing, I think. I mean, because like you said, the end didn't pick up uh, as much popularity as Light My Fire. One because it wasn't as quippy and upbeat, and two because it was like a like a ten minute song. Yeah, and, and well, a lot of people were doing ten minute songs like Pink Floyd. And, yeah, and I would was, say a lot was, of people, but well, uh, the main uh, psychedelia kind of guys yeah, were doing that, that. That genre that they were in, where yeah. that was their their thing. Like, yeah, but we the, don't care if we can play it on the radio. We just yeah. wanted everybody to go to our concert. Yeah, you know? but I mean, when he when he played that, you know, when he when he freaked out on stage nobody had ever seen anything like that before either because he's saying i walk on down the hall right right father took, i want to kill yeah, you yeah 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 and then he gets to his mom his mother i want to fuck you fuck yeah he just started lo- losing his fucking mind and everybody in the club had to have been i mean i wish i wish they would have had that like actually taped people's reactions to that I mean, they just lost their fucking mind there. And not in a sense of like, some loved it, but some were like, what in the fuck yeah, did wh- he just I say? I don't support this. Yeah. He's talking about fucking his mom and all these different kind of things. And the, like, the whiskey manager and management freaked team out. freaked out. Said yeah. They're not allowed back to play there ever again. Yeah. And then, you know, it was kind they of. They fired him on the spot, you know? Yeah, but. Like I said, it was great timing because that, that, that scout from Electra was right, right there, there to there, sign them yeah. off and, and make their rock and roll dreams come true. Yeah, and rightfully so, too, because like we were talking about, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people from back, back in that time period with all that stuff going on were very closed-minded. And, you know, the, the other house bands that were playing for the whiskey were like, you know, he, they were open up for like Buffalo Springfield and yeah. Van Morrison and all that kind of shit. You know, yeah. they, weren't, they weren't anything like, you know, controversial or, you know, rock and roll poets like Jim Morrison. I don't feel like they were actually ready for him. Yeah, they weren't trying to push any envelopes. Right, and because they were just mostly just sitting there. The audiences were just sitting there staring in awe. They you know? weren't looking for that shock 
rock yeah. type, type situation. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And so like you said, yeah, Jack, uh, Jack Holzman of Electra Records happened to be there last night, or that night, and uh, they offered him a deal. They offered yep. him a record deal yep. uh, in 67. And they pretty much got, to, got right to work recording their, their self-titled album. And, uh, they did a lot of albums in such a short amount oh of time. Oh, my God, dude. It was, it was pretty incredible. And in, in the pressure on them. You know, you see a lot of, a lot of bands uh, throughout history that some of them just can't handle the pressure. And I think Jim, Jim might have been one of them. You know what I mean? There was only one album that kind of flopped, if you may. Yeah, the Soft Parade. The Soft Parade debuted at number three, I think. Yeah. And then quickly fell to the bottom of the chart. Yeah, I mean, it was they were going a different direction because during that time period as well. Well, they were just experimenting. Probably. They were experimenting, and and I think the record companies, you know, kind of gave Jim almost an ultimatum. Or like, hey, man, you need to clean this shit up a little bit, right? You right. know, because everywhere that man went was controversy followed him. His live performances, his studio performances, you know, out on the street, his interviews, everything, his poetry that would pub- that was published, it was all very very controversial because nobody had seen things like that at the time. But the publicity was great. Great mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> for those guys. Yeah, he was very, uh, you know, he was a rock and roll poet, man. He was very dangerous. He was very highly intelligent, much like much like people like Patti Smith. Yeah, everybody wanted to go to see him live to see what he's going to do next. Right. You know, what's going to be the next stunt he pulls? Right. You know? So, so in in '67, um, they had uh, they came out with two different albums. They came out with a Strange Day. Well, they're self titled first, and then it was Strange Days. You you you. And if any of you have heard their self-titled album, I'm sure you know their 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 classic singles off that "Break On Through." That's you know the that's end. song number one. You know the end. That's last song on side B. Uh, my favorite. Uh, well, "Light My Fire," obviously. Yeah. Backdoor Man. Crystal Ship. Crystal Ship. That's my favorite song on that whole album. That's a great oh, it's, song. Yeah, really good. That's a great song. And and leading into their next album, uh, "Strange Days," that that also, like I said, came out Electra Records, 1967. Um, Something unique about that too is when you listen to the Doors, they have almost like a uh, kind of eerie circus sound to them. Yeah, but Strange Days, that that song, that particular song, it mm-hmm. was kind of very electronic for that time period. I mean, right? I don't know uh, what they did for the for the electro- for those keyboards, but it, it sounded great. You know, for just you know compared to today's standard well yeah and also that's a good point because um it was before the big synthesizer boom and before like how everything was going electronics when you Mm -hmm. reached like the late 70s early 80s that's when things started going you know full synth rock and right everybody was doing that this was still back in the days where people actually played their fucking instruments yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's probably like a you know organ mixed with a a moog and you know yeah whatever 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 they're using back in the 60s yeah whatever 60 pound piece of equipment to mm-hmm. make one fucking twang sound they were using yeah, back then, so, you know? Yeah, the biggest analog synth they can find. Yeah, but I think that's what they were going for. They were going for that kind of uh, eerie, uh, you know, circus sound. You know, boom, burp, boom, burp, boom, burp, mm-hmm. boom, burp, boom, boom, that, that kind of shit a, going on. Could be a baseball game, could be yeah. a circus, but, but the cover of the album... Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, the cover of the album was all circus performers. You know, you had the strong man, the, the mm-hmm. small person... It's perfectly for the for that <laughs> organ. If that's the if that's the correct politically correct term to say nowadays, small person, is that yeah. what it is? I think it's midget. Isn't no, that's, oh, that's not the one. Oh, that's not it. That's not that's not the uh, one. That's I thought it was mental midget. No, no we, oh, sorry, we don't I'm do sorry. that anymore. I'm sorry, we don't do that anymore. I forgot. So strange days. Yes, they they really turned up the heat as far as Ray Manzarek, and he, I really honestly believe that Ray was kind of the one that kept Jim level 
and mm-hmm. kind of kept the band on an even keel. Yeah. Because yeah. if you see how Ray carries himself, he's very stoic. Very cool. Very, very cool. chic. Yeah, very to the point, very stoic, very, yes, Ray Manzarek, organist. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Almost mm-hmm. like a talk show host or like yeah. a radio or like a radio DJ or That's something. That's why Jim probably listened to him more than the other guys. Yeah, because, he, oh, well, John Densmore, all he did was bitch at him. Yeah. You need to fucking stop it. And Robbie was like, yeah, man, far out. He didn't give a yeah, shit. He, yeah, he was <laughs> off in La La Land half the time himself. Yeah, and, and you can see that relationship uh, between them in Oliver Stone's movie, The Doors, very represented pretty pretty accurately. Because uh, uh, John's Kilmer. always getting Val Kilmer, shit. I can't say enough about him in that movie. I mean, he's just, yeah. you know, perfect, perfect Jim Morrison actor. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So a little, a couple of the singles on the uh, Strange Days album, obviously, uh, you know, Love Me Two Times, which is a great, I love that lick, man. Yeah, a little, little trill at the end. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, Moonlight Drive. Uh, that was another single, and that was kind of weird that they did, they didn't release that on their first album. Yeah, that's the that song was, they brought them together. So they just had different songs that they had in the back burner. They were like, okay, well, we'll just put that on a, a different album. You know, yeah. it's not going to fit on this one. But yeah, that's probably what happened. They probably had recorded it and then was like, ah, this isn't a good breakout. I don't know why hit. they didn't put that on uh, Soft Parade though. But hey, I don't whatever. know, man. <sighs> whatever. It was it was a great album. Strange Days was a great album, and obviously, People Are Strange. That's probably the most. One of the most iconic Doors, Doors songs. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, that's one of my favorites as well. But it was also, that was also just a very, you know, far out yeah. kind of song. Like all of their, all of their music was very, very far out. You this know? The original. I mean, yeah. those guys, you know, to this day, no one's going to be, you know, taking their place. Right. Yeah. And, and the, their, mu- their music w- reflected what was happening around them. It almost brought you in the moment because a lot of people say that, when you when you went to a door show, you didn't know if you were there for five minutes or five hours. Right. You right. know what I mean? And it was all, they, they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what was going to happen with Jim. They didn't know what the fuck he was going to do. Yeah, he was he was definitely a loose cannon. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, and that's and that's also another another breakthrough that I feel like the Doors had made because back then, at least in America, I can't speak for the uh, the European and the English movement, but. Uh, in America, they weren't used to uh, going to concerts and having the immense amount of security because their their concerts aren't weren't like ours are today. You go to a show today and it's barriers and oh, maybe, yeah. maybe a couple police officers by the stage, maybe two. Because back then it was a bunch of hippies, man. They were all peace, love, and granola the whole time. So. Right, right. There wasn't people like bum rushing the stage and freaking out, right? And, you right. know, head banging and mosh pitting. And people all bringing in knives and yeah, there crap. wasn't any of that. No, that was back in the in the good old days when you could bring your own water and a cooler and yeah, drugs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever you wanted. Now you can't even bring a fucking bottle cap. <laughs> I can't even get a bottle cap at a fucking concert That's nowadays. Right. You can't even bring a fucking GoPro in. Yeah, I know. You almost need to order. I feel like I need to do that. I need to go to Amazon and order like a bag of 25 bottle caps just to keep one in my pocket to go to a show. Well, you know what they sell on Amazon, right? What? They sell these bottle caps that uh, sometimes you can bring in a bottle of water. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you buy these bottle caps that, that look like they're sealed still. And the, so what you do is you fill it up with vodka. Yeah, and then you put these like these fake bottle caps that look like make it look like they're sealed still, and you can wow. that's, that's like that's how you get some us degenerates of this generation will think of anything, right? That's how you get them in. Get, that's how you get them in. <laughs> that's how you get them in. You don't stick it up your ass. Yeah. <laughs> or you could be like me, and you could just take a like clear bladders and fill up, put a whole bottle of vodka in the bladder, and medical tape it to your inner thigh. Yeah, and walk like a fucking penguin for a little <laughs> while, and have the the spout of the vodka thing chafing your taint. Where there's a will, there's a way. That's right, baby. Anyway, 
So uh, right at this point in 67, at the break of 68, they're starting to record their, uh, their third studio album, Waiting for the Sun, which was still very, very Doors, very same sound. Not mm-hmm. same sound, but very indicative of their past music. Right. You know, uh, and, and at this point as well, uh, they started playing a lot more shows. Yeah. You know, they were on tour. This was before Jim started getting a little too crazy and the music industries were kind of afraid of him. Uh, you know, after that, but you know, this is still when they're playing shows. They're, you know, they're very big. They're at the height of their fame. They're number one on the charts. They're being described as America's Rolling Stones. Right. You know, this is huge. Yeah. And so, and and for for the aforementioned reasons, because they didn't know what Jim was going to do. Right. They never knew what Jim was going to do. You know. Yeah. Not even <laughs> the crowd didn't know. The fucking band didn't even you know have oh, any idea. Yeah. They're like, oh shit, is tonight going to be a good night or a bad night? Yeah, What's going to happen today? Yeah. Is tonight going to be a good night for Jim? Is he going to freak out and jump off an eight foot stage and break his fucking ankle? <laughs> yeah. You know, nobody knows what's going to happen with Jim tonight. Yeah. Um. But so, like we said, uh, at a door show, when you when you watch, you can watch a few of their live performances on Amazon. You can see that the security is heavy. You can almost, in some of them, you almost can't even see the band hardly mm-hmm. because of how much security, because they didn't have those big barriers. Well, they didn't really have, have that security issue until after, uh, what was it, the Connecticut show? Yeah, the New Haven show. Right. right. When, uh, when Jim decided that he was going to go backstage and... With a fan. And, with and, a fan. And, and, and like a shower stall area. Yeah, and do what a rock star is going to do. Exactly. Diddle. And, the police officer <laughs> crept up on him like a little creeper. He was yeah. didn't like what he was going. What he was seeing. He thought he thought Jim was the, was a fan. They thought they were both just backstage, you know, doing stuff, fucking around, fucking around, literally. Yeah. And so uh, he he said uh, stop. And then Jim was being Jim. And Jim said, "Oh yeah, what are you gonna do, officer? Are you gonna mace me with that mace in your pocket?" And that's what happened. He. Pulled the mace he goes, out. well, yes. Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to. It actually didn't come out until later that um, the girl got maced as well. Yeah. So that was another tidbit. But, uh, yeah, so uh, took about an hour for Jim to get the mace out of his eyes before he came out on stage. And fans were getting restless. People yeah. were getting PO'd. And so yeah. uh, when he finally came out on stage, Jim was still furious about what had happened backstage. And yeah. started singing a song about the little man in blue. Yeah, little man in a little blue hat and a little blue suit <laughs> with a little can of mace. <laughs> and he just kept going and going. Until finally they had had enough. Yeah. Police. Yeah. And yes, he got arrested a lot, or at least detained. Yeah. It, it, was, it was rare, I think, back in that time to see a full Doors show. <laughs> you know? like the guns and roses of their time yeah like only only jim wasn't a bitch <laughs> yeah, right. he just he just pushed pushed the envelope he wasn't a fucking whiny asshole like axel rose correct yeah. correct yeah <laughs> so uh so yeah they were they're recording their uh third studio album uh waiting for the sun uh a few a few singles that you may know off this one is uh hello i love you you know mm-hmm. won't you tell me your name and then love street he had that, uh, the unknown soldier. That was one of the first outwardly political songs that they had come come out with. Yeah, because they didn't really delve into that too much. No, and and I like that about them. You yeah, know, like yeah. bands like Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd was very political oh, and yeah. very war oriented. You know, obviously because of Roger Waters and his dad dying in World War Two. Really? A lot of their songs. They all were about experienced that. World War Two firsthand in Britain. So. Right, exactly. But uh, the Doors, they didn't really pick up on that whole scene because you had you had. Um, 
other bands that were that were really heavily pressing on in that time period that were pressing on the you know the war efforts the Vietnam mm-hmm. stuff your Creedence Clearwaters and all that kind of stuff your Can yep. Heats and all that Korea. kind of shit yeah Crosby Stills Nash and Young they were they were playing a few songs about it so in in a world full of that they were still maintaining that originality and doing their own thing yeah yeah you know which is cool because that was a rarity for the time yeah you know that's a rarity for any time really mm-hmm. well. So anyway, a couple, and then you move on to side B, and you've got My Wild Love and Spanish Caravan, and then Five to One. Mm-hmm. Those are three incredible songs. And like Mark mentioned before, uh, Robbie Krieger's um, Spanish flamenco guitar influence really comes out here. I kind of wish that he uh, you know, did a little bit more of that on, on other stuff. He didn't really, yeah. didn't really have too much uh, expansion on that. But, no. But that was a masterpiece. That song is a masterpiece for that style of playing. It was yeah. Yeah. Definitely really good. Uh Pantera, didn't they do a remake of that? Yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think so, yeah. Which I I don't know about that, man. <laughs> it was kind of cool to you know, I mean, to, hear, to hear a different take on it. It's all kind know? it's kind of cool when bands do other people's songs, but like most of them aren't cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of them aren't cool. Yeah. But in yeah. into, into who? Uh, so yeah, that Spanish Caravan song. If you guys haven't heard that one, that's that's definitely one to put on your playlist to go ahead and uh, and and give a good, a comprehensive listening to because you really see Robbie Kriegers. Because you know it's said too, and a lot of guitar magazines and, and and Mark and I share the same feeling that Robbie Krieger is probably one of the more underrated guitar players to ever play in the industry. I mean, Rolling Stone did say that he's one of the greatest guitar players of all time. Really? But and you can tell you because there's a lot of a lot of the you know the main licks you hear of him playing guitar, you, you, you know, oh yeah, you know, it's a pretty badass lick or whatever, but there's a lot of undertone licks. Like if you're yeah. listening to the organ and stuff, you can hear him in the background with his, with his licks yeah. and, and they are pretty intricate, you know, yeah. a, lot, a lot of them, you know, sound very well blended, you know, I would that, agree. That's why you don't notice them because he blends them so well. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, one of the, one of the, another funny Jim Morrison show incident, uh, well, not so much, not so much funny, but it's something that you can see that really influenced him at the time. Is they were playing um, at the Singer Bowl uh, in Long Island, and uh, we we haven't talked much about his muse yet, Pam Corson, who was always around kind of since the beginning. And yeah, she was his rock. She was his in, rock. Yeah, in a world full of chaos, she was his only real, real constant. Right, right. You know, so at that show, it was funny because. Uh, he got a little distracted at that show, and they say that's one of their one of their worst shows uh, because <laughs> there in the front row uh, was Mick Jagger with Pam Corson sitting on his lap watching the show the whole time. Son of a bitch! Yes, son of a bitch! <laughs> but I mean, you can't really blame the girl because they were in an uh, uh, you know an outwardly open relationship, right? Because right. he was out there fucking everything that moved. I mean, in the movie, you know, you see Jim opening, where Pam gets all pissed off because Jim didn't show up to where he was supposed to be to meet her, and he, mm. she's going back to the room, and she opens the door to the, ho- or the to the elevator at the hotel, and there's Jim getting a blowy from you know some random fan, you know, and yeah. he's just looking at her like ha 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 ha, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just loses his mind. That was a very like maniacal uh-huh. sort of laugh. It almost like made me feel like a little funny. I was like, oh, well, damn, that dude. was that was also brings us to the point where uh, Andy Warhol was very fascinated with Jim. Oh, obsessed. Yeah. So yeah. you know, well, that was one of those I feel like kind of shared minds of that time. You know what I mean? Those those yeah. very deeply if, introspective. If you're into art and any kind of 
obscurity. Andy wants to meet you. Somebody gave me this phone. <laughs> they said I could uh, talk to God with it. And now maybe you can talk to God. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> As he's licking his lips, looking up at Jim and his leathers and his big concho belt. You know, Jim's like, fucking thanks, man. And gives it to a bum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gives to a bum. And there was also that one uh, Thanksgiving uh, part of the movie where with Billy Idol, yeah, Billy, yeah, right, right. But we don't. I'm not sure how factual it was. But when he uh, he lit the the closet on fire with Pam in it, yeah, I, I'm not sure if that actually happened. But I mean, I couldn't I put it past know. him. Well, Pam, he with all the drugs that Jim was doing, he never fucked with heroin. Yeah, and I think that's what kept him alive for as long as it did. Yeah, because he never fucked with heroin, and that was heroin was huge. Back yeah, then. well, especially huge. if he's drinking, uh, you know, God, that's, yeah, that's gonna be an easy, easy yeah, way. He down just wasn't. He, he he was a, a unique in that rock star stardom as well because he wasn't as into the uh, the harder drugs like that as everybody else was. He was more into the expanding his mind and putting his mind to his poetry and his work. Yeah, you the, know, his the, music, the psychedelic. Right. Movement. Yeah, which is back in that time, like we talked about, there was a, a few, a handful of, of good, uh, you know, psychedelic rock musicians, but they, there wasn't, they weren't huge at the time. You know, what did you mm-hmm. have? You had Pink Floyd, you know, had The Doors, and then you had a little bit of Jefferson Airplane stuff coming through. And, right. But all of it, like we spoke about in the beginning, it was, it was very heavily blues influence. It was the same shit over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know? Just regurgitated it out. Yeah, and so, uh, anywho, yeah, and so that moves on to uh, the 1968 when they began recording uh, The Soft Parade, which, like Mark said, was a very uh, unique album for them because it was kind of a different sound. Yeah, very different. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some like it, some don't, and you know, I didn't really care for it that much. I wasn't, I wasn't huge on it. Uh, it, was, it was okay. They had, a, they had a couple of tracks that I liked. The Shaman's Blues, I liked that pretty well. Uh, Wild Child was okay. A Run in Blue. And I, and I, feel, like, I feel like this is where also it, it, the tide started to turn because we had mentioned before that Robbie Krager wanted to stray away from blues as much as possible. Right. You know, but this is kind of where they started looping back to his to his roots. roots and and they had to because that's where the, that's where their their soul lied right right and this is also where where jim started kind of flying off the off the handle yeah you know what i mean yeah. he started a little, a little too out of control he started getting a little out of control showing up to the recording studio yeah. wasted out of his mind yeah and he started gaining weight too well, yeah, I mean, you drink every day nonstop. <laughs> what do you think's gonna happen? Right, right. I'm sure we've all been there, right? No, we all drink past five o'clock on weekends. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. This life's fucking beautiful enough, right? But anyway, so yeah, they started having a lot of problems with Jim, and Jim used to do a lot of uh, disappearing. He would disappear uh, for weeks on end and take breaks from tours, and and at one of them, Oliver Stone portrays this as well. Uh, they the band got together because they couldn't find him and they actually sold the rights to well l- were looking at selling the rights to light my fire to a car company for a commercial yeah because at that time i don't think they actually did that so they, they, but then when jim walked into the studio they were all kind of just listening to the ad without jim's knowledge and yeah. then jim flipped out you know didn't want to sell out didn't didn't right. didn't want that to be you know tarnishing his name right and that and that would have i mean because your persona as a band you need to maintain that persona yeah you know yeah. and that would have that would have heavily heavily tarnished so that. even though the band members thought that that was a good money move the jim said no and i'm not signing off on that right 
And so this is, this is kind of the, the turning point and kind of the downward spiral that, that Jim started getting into because he started not only becoming, he was not only a spectacle, you know, in his albums and live in concert, but he was becoming a spectacle, like a, you know, a spectacle to his bandmates. Right. Because he was bringing that shit home. He was bringing his dirty laundry into the studio when it was time to work. And, and that's kind of when the band started, like, getting onto their heels and started getting a little afraid, I feel like. No, I think you're t- you're 100% right. It's, mm-hmm. it's like you're, you're dealing with a, with a human time bomb. You don't right. know when it's going to go off, you know. Right. You don't know what to expect, you know. On stage, he's he's, you know, standing there. He'll he'll walk off stage. He won't show up to the concert. I mean, right. The guy was definitely a wild child. He was, yeah. you know, he was the wild child. Yeah. And he started I mean, cuz it was also in like look at the other big one of the other big alcohol-driven musicians of that time, Janis Joplin, she was the same way. Yeah, well, you know, when Janis Joplin and, and Jimi Hendrix passed on, uh, they say that Jim was 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 really affected. By oh that. yeah, absolutely. You know, he, he was super super upset about it. Yeah, and he 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 vocalized that too. He's like, I'm gonna make the third. I think that's when he started realizing that he's not invincible. Oh yeah, he's you know? not immortal. That uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it can happen to these rock stars. Yeah, I think you're you're exactly right. Yeah, on that on that. That's that's good. And with <laughs> Janis Joplin, a funny little story about Jim and Janis Joplin. They were at a party, uh, and Jim had put his face into Janis Joplin's crotch, and she shattered the oh-so-famous left-hand ritual that she always had. She smashed a Southern Comfort bottle over his head. That could have fucking killed him right now. Oh, I know. There. And oh it's interesting, God. too, because Janis, you, you read a lot of things about her and how, how a lot of people spoke about her. She was very sexually open. I mean, she was in an open relationship with what was his name, Pigpen of <laughs> Jim. Must have been spinning Grateful Dead. So out of control that day. <laughs> yeah, she fucking for Janis Joplin. She fucked everybody for Janis Joplin <laughs> to break a bottle over your head. Fuck, man, you must have been really acting a fucking fool. Maybe you know? maybe he threw up in her lap. Who knows? Maybe he threw up. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, like I said, this is start. This is when he uh, he started spiraling out of control, uh, and then and then on to their their uh, fifth um, studio album. Uh, Morrison Hotel uh, that came out uh, what was it 1970 February 9th 1970 this is when uh, when you can really start hearing the blues come out mm-hmm. you know obviously the first song on the on the albums Roadhouse Blues killer's killer song killer song I think that was really their only their only hit single off that one I yeah. think yeah because uh, they had like Waiting for the Sun and uh, Ship of Fools and Queen of the Highway and all that kind of stuff but uh, I think I think Roadhouse Blues was really their uh, their only real single on that album. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so, but a little bit before that, let's talk a little bit about the controversy that happened in Miami. That was well, big. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that somebody actually fell from the upper level on that show as well. Yeah. I'm not sure if they... I th- that they died. But. They did a lot of fucked up shit at that show, man. One of the fans threw an, a gallon of orange paint at the stage. Why? Fuck, right? What is the purpose? How do you get that in? <laughs> you just stand in line with your ticket with a fucking gallon of orange paint? Yeah. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you, who let that guy in there? That had to have been planted before the show. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know, man. <laughs> and I think, I think that's also, I think. Well, they were throwing drugs at the stage. Oh, that yeah. Show and- yeah, I mean, well, so that when they threw that gallon of orange paint, that's what they, uh, that's what was said to have set Jim off. You know, that's mm-hmm. when he went into the, 
the the age old and famous rant that he went into. I'm not talking about no revolution. Mm, so he turned into Mojo Rising. Yeah, I ain't talking about no demonstration. I'm talking about having a good time. Yeah. He started losing his shit. And the crowd was like, whip it out. Yeah, whip it out. And he's like, you're all a bunch of fucking slaves. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm the Lizard King. Yeah, I'm the Lizard King. I can do anything. Yeah. And so that's when, uh, that's when you know, they made it through maybe two or three songs halfway. You know, they were, he, was, he kept stopping the, the set and, mm-hmm. and interjecting these, these crazy, profound fucking verses and, and outbursts and all these kind of things that he did. And so the controversial portion when the show actually stopped was the, the whether or not it happened or not, I don't know. But when Jim quote unquote pulled his dick out on stage, I don't know. There's not enough proof to back it up, but the crowd, supposedly the crowd was egging him on to do it too. Well, I mean, that's no, that's, you know, no way. Same thing happened with Marilyn Manson. Mm -hmm. And he was, what happened with him? He was, he was in Florida doing a show and he pulled his out on stage and then the same thing happened he gets arrested and then he was banned from florida huh but then they lifted the ban about five years ago yeah well charlie christ uh governor of florida at the time actually dropped all the charges on uh jim morrison in 2010 (laughs) (laughs) like that fucking matters (laughs) too little too little too late buddy but uh anyway after this show that's that's when the the career for the doors really started spiraling i mean there people were still listening to their music but the trying to get their music played on the radio band like uh jim was going through you know constant court battles this time they hit him with uh, with a felony and two misdemeanors and you know the misdemeanors inciting a riot yeah you know foul language drunken public shit like that but uh, the felony was for the exposure charge yep he, and, did, he did a little bit of time in the old can for that yeah a little bit and they uh the final sentencing i think was uh 60 days hard labor or whatever whether or not he completed that i don't know. i think he probably just said you know what i'm just not gonna go back to florida fuck it yeah, fuck Florida. Yeah, you know because he even to go said there. that. Yeah, he even said that he was like, "They're making a revolution out there in California." Yeah. You know, because Jim's from Florida. Jim's from Melbourne, Florida. Yeah, yeah. So he's back home. I don't think he. Had that. I think that's probably one of the, like the first time he had been back home since then. But anyway, like you said, yeah, he just kind of started scaping out on Florida, and this time was uh, the doors passed on Woodstock. They didn't want to do Woodstock, so they went over to the uh, the Isle of Wight festival over there in England and he had done that and that's after he uh he kind of started disappearing a little bit and that's when you know Janice and 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 Hendrix died and all of that so he was in a in a pretty emotional spiral yeah at that time you know um but anyway moving to their their sixth album which was I'm sure a struggle to record with Jim in the current state that he was LA Woman which is probably my favorite album they're they're self-titled and probably well no well, they actually, were at the top of their game i mean they were refined they were yeah. polished they were tight they were playing together yeah but everybody was afraid to book them they weren't getting booked for gigs that's because he was flaky man he was too yeah. flaky to, and he was to, too crazy yeah 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 you know nobody nobody knew what the fuck he was gonna do mm-hmm. he was a fucking madman yeah they didn't they didn't want a riot happening in their town right and and there was a lot of like, in, especially in florida too there was a lot of peace rallies and and things like we not in my state like we don't want that kind of shit around here yeah kind of garbage you know and so that that started affecting him um but but at the time they still released la woman and and i'm sure you guys absolutely know the singles or at least one or two of them you've heard of them uh lover madly and uh riders on the storm that's that's probably in my opinion that's probably the best song that they've ever produced i could i could definitely concur you know that's probably probably the best 
Um, and that's also funny you should mention uh, the producer and bassist because that's when uh, the Rothschild producer came in on that album mm-hmm. and they hired the studio bassist. I did, I did remember reading that. I just can't, uh, I just couldn't remember exactly what they were doing with it. But those keyboard licks on Riders, oh. I mean, that's what set the whole song. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was absolutely beautiful. It yeah. was wonderful. Um, so after this time, Jim, after L.A. Woman, uh, and with all the scrutiny going on in Florida and, and with the effects of Hendrix and Joplin's death and just all of these different things, Jim started separating himself, like actively for real, step, separating himself from the band and the music life. And right. he had taken a lot of time off because he wanted to focus on his poetry. Right. Um, and so over there in, in 1971, him and Pam Corson uh, decided that they were going to move over to Paris. <laughs> the book, the the city of love, where Jim could really focus on his poetry and his vibe and his writing and all of these different things. Bad um, move, buddy. Bad. Yeah. Move. And 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 Ray goes on record a lot with saying that the he he kind of felt like this was probably the last time he was going to see Jim. He didn't want to believe it, but uh, but yeah, this he was, was right. He was he was definitely right. So in uh in in March of 1971. After, uh, you know, the night before, Pam and him had a big fight, and then they had stayed up multiple hours into the wee morning doing drugs, and she finally got Jim to try heroin, and he was all heroined up. And, and at this time already, Jim's health was deteriorating. You know, you do that much drugs for that long. Well, he's also addicted to alcohol. His body needs yeah. the alcohol, so he's drinking that with, along with the, with the drugs. And, yeah. You know, but yeah, still to this day, they still don't know exactly what the cause of death was because they didn't have the proper toxicology reports no. like we do these days yeah. especially over in Europe right well and Pam the next morning had uh, gone in there and Jim was in the bathtub and she was like hey Jim are you okay and blah 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 he's like yeah I'm fine I'll be in there in a minute and she had ended up passing out and then came back I guess hours later and he was dead in the uh, in the bathtub yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> which was a lot of a lot of scrutiny behind that too and a lot of subjectivism because uh, nobody saw the body other than Pam yeah, so uh, he could be hanging out somewhere with old Elvis. Hanging out with Elvis, hanging out with Kurt, Tupac, Who and happened Biggie. to be his idol. Well, yeah, Elvis was. Yeah, he was absolutely obsessed with, with Elvis, and I think that's where also a lot of his stage theatrics came from, you know? Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, that's when, uh, that's when Jim died, and then um, he had his American Poetry album produced, uh, and then he also had two poetry books produced, which... He had a couple. He had a couple published um, before he died. However, it wasn't. They didn't. You know, they weren't chart toppers or anything. It was. I think yeah. it was more of like a, like an Edgar Allan Poe scene where he didn't exactly start getting famous and in credit for it until but he the, died. The band didn't do the background music until after his death before right. they were going to release that poetry. Right. Right. So, yeah, that's a that's that's a little bit about the chaotic nature and the. Uh, poetic love that is Jim Morrison and the, the rising of the doors. Now the doors did go on after that. They did. They did. And I think Dinsmore left the band eventually. And then, so uh, the other two guys, they were like, hey, you know, fuck it. We'll just, we'll just go on by ourselves and still call ourselves the doors. But then Dinsmore kind of was like, yeah, stop calling yourselves the doors. You're not really the doors. You're not, you know? And then they stopped for a while and then they went back out again when they had the lead singer, uh, I forget his name of the cult. Oh was, yeah, was, yeah. Their, was their front man for a little while, which is cool because he kind of has like a little Jim Morrison. But it's not Jim Morrison. It's not. It's not. It's like today's today to do. You know, they, they do the same right. thing today with the, with the band. And I think that's ignorant, man. Like I've always had a big theory: if you lose your front man, like I, I hate the stigma. do a different project. Right, right. I hate the stigma behind 
uh, you know, bands when they lose their front man. And I feel like that the instrumentalists don't get enough credit, like the guitar players and, you know, the drummer, the bassist, the organist, whatever. Right. But let's be honest, man. It's just the entertainment industry and it's the media driven industry that we live in. The front man is the band. Yeah. I mean, look, look at pop culture. Right. You know, these pop stars, you know. Mm-hmm. They sing uh, 10 lines and they're freaking famous. You know? Right. And it's the same. Like, I noticed this a lot Zero more. Zero talent. Yeah. And I started feeling a little bit more passionately about it with the Alice in Chains thing because, you know, Jerry Cantrell, he's a great backup vocalist. He's a great songwriter and he's a great guitar player. But, man, after Lane Staley died, it's like, fucking hang it up, man. You don't even sound the same. You're not Alice in Chains anymore. It's, it's all about the money, though. Oh, yeah. A lot of, of the time, it's like, uh, how am I going to support my family for, for the, the means that they're used to living? Uh, yeah, I guess well. I'll just have to find somebody to sing the, for the band. Yeah, whatever. But anyway. Because <laughs> he tried going out on his own and obviously didn't work out. Wasn't well. as crazy as, as, uh, as nobody Alice wants in to Chains. hear that shit. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, hey, I guess. But uh, so our album of the week, we're going to do a little review. Slipknot just came out with a new album. We are not your kind. It dropped so August 9th. fucking good. Oh, my God. It was an amazing. It is an amazing album. I feel like this is like their their magnus opus, man. Like this is this is the best album that they've come out with since Iowa. It's going to be hard to top this one. Yeah, this is the album that everybody all the slip all Slipknot fans have been waiting for. This is the album that that Corey Taylor, I feel like, finds the true balance between Stone Sour and Slipknot. Right. It, it's the true balance. And the, the instrument, not the instrumentals, the um, the electronics and the sound that they came up with with a lot of these songs. I love how they updated their electronics. Like, I mean, they just, they used it. Yeah. And they used it well. Yeah. You know, and, and, the, and like you were saying to me earlier before the show, how the whole album tells one complete story. You yeah. Know? You know, it's one I, continuous I love when bands album. do that. Yeah, it's fantastic. And like how they incorporated the the choir intros and the choir backgrounds into the the, the unsainted single and uh, Nero Forte, that was a beautiful song. The uh, the instrumentals and the electronics behind a liar's funeral, which is my personal favorite song on the album. It's mm. it's absolutely fantastic. And then that um that eerie kind of speaking of carnival sound, that eerie carnival mix that uh that that song Spiders. Great song. Great song. And that's going to be used in a fucking horror movie somewhere at some time. If it hasn't been already and we just haven't seen the movie yet. (laughs) Right, right. And I also, yeah. And I also have to give a little kudos. Uh, Last night, my wife and I, we went out and saw Live and Bush. They're doing the ultimate tour around the U.S. now. It was a fantastic uh, set. They played a great set. They played a fantastic show as a whole. They're still kicking it 25, 30 uh, 30 years strong. Uh, Gavin Rosdale, that guy's got more energy in his fucking 40s and 50s that I have now in my <laughs> 30s. Like that guy, he was, it was a triple level auditorium. And I mean, he was, he disappeared off stage and ran all the way to the top level and popped out with his microphone. He just ran to the second level, the first level through was the he fucking pit. Chris Angel? Goddamn, dude. It looked like it. The motherfucker was like Spider Man, dude. He was all over the fucking place. Twin brother hung out. Yeah, that's it. But anyway, um, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, as always, we don't quite have a topic picked out for next week, but you know, as always, it's going to be great. Uh, we have our YouTube channel working. Now I just got to do a little bit of video editing. I'm going to upload it to uh, Rock Isn't Dead, It's Just Sleeping YouTube channel. Uh, please email us if you have any ideas for the show or anybody that may want to do a phone-in interview or anything like that. Email me at willywhitebread69 at gmail.com. And as always, please go ahead and go on to whatever platform you're listening to the podcast. Leave a review, good, bad, ugly, comment, whatever, and we will see you next week. Later, guys. <laughs>